Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Now more than ever, you need a laptop that can be as adaptable as you are. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Finally, a premium laptop at an affordable price. Starting at just $549, its light, thin design, vibrant touchscreen, powerful processor, and built-in HD camera and mic turns any room in your home into a classroom, office, or study hall. Available in three amazing colors the whole family will love. Visit surface.com slash laptop go for more details. We're over here charging people and treating them for the shit that they've gone through systemically. Right. So when I talk about poison waters, like here we are trying to help people heal with the master's tools still. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song, Ebonics, the late great Big L raps. If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert, but I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influencers in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. After a long hiatus, we are back with another episode of 730. For this episode, I was lucky to have Dr. Jennifer Mullen join me. She's currently a full-time psychologist at the New Jersey City University's Counseling Center. She is best known for her work, which centers on historical and intergenerational trauma, or what she describes as ancestral trauma. And she sees this as being at the crux of decolonizing therapy, which you'll learn more about on this episode. Her dissertation, From the Cotton Fields to the Concrete Jungle, is the foundation of her current work in furthering emotional wellness for communities of color. It's important to highlight that this episode was recorded pre-COVID, so some current events may not have been addressed, although they may have been relevant to the conversation we had. When I first launched 730, Dr. Mullen was one of the first people I wanted to have on the podcast. I just felt like her work in regard to intergenerational trauma was so relevant to my own experience, and I really wanted to pick her brain and, and see how she thought about her work and her practice. So having her own was like a bucket list item for me as a podcast host. So she's just an incredible person who brought a lot to the conversation. And here it is. What is your current position and what you do and who you're working with and what populations and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that? Yeah, Um, I'm a counselor at a university counseling center. Uh, I also, well, so I do individual therapy, group therapy, couples therapy, and crisis. Um, I also run, co-facilitate the LGBTQIA support group on campus. I'm a safe zone trainer, um, which basically means that I help do workshops, educating staff, students, everybody on, like, queer identity, you know, and helping us be a little bit more conscious of our students. Um, and I also am the coordinator of a peer education program where I do the grants for that, staff, everything, you name it. And then I also teach <laughs> as a side hustle, um, which is why. And you, yeah. so you don't have private practice or anything like that? Now I have um, a coaching healing practice. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, so it's, um, it's like a community practice and it's predominantly online for now. We are trying to make it happen so that it's in person, in person, a real place. Because I feel like Jersey City and the New York area needs us. So look out for that. Give me a brief breakdown on what your background is, 
and how you came into this world of being a psychologist. So I grew up in the inner city of Jersey City, uh, New Jersey. So we're the ones looking at New York. Right? I, th- I like to think we have the better view. I'm sorry. Definitely do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up to like a, you know, I'm a first generation college student. I didn't think that I was going to go to college, but my mother was basically like, well, you're either going to college <laughs> and we're going to get a full time job or you're out of the house. Like you, you have to make some decisions. Um, so I got caught up into like a peer education group at my university, and it really shifted the way that I see working on yourself, whatever that means. Like, um, gay white man who was a psychologist who had a bunch of us inner city students, like, doing mindfulness and being in a group and talking about our feelings and talking about our family and not feeling guilty for talking about our families and stuff that we didn't like coming up. Um, So that was, like, the beginning. That was, like, the very start. And then I realized I was kind of good at it. Like, in group, I would give people feedback, or it just felt natural. It felt like I wasn't working. And then, um, same thing, my mother was like, okay, well, you're basically going to your master's, or you're going to do something. And I'm just like, oh, I barely got through undergrad. But the truth is that I was kind of good at school, because I took classes that really, like, were me. You know, like, it was really a focus on me, and it was always people-centered. You know, and I started realizing, then I started caring a little bit more about, like, what makes people do what they do and identity and um, why, what makes people feel good, what makes people feel bad. And I didn't realize at the time I was talking about trauma or thinking about trauma because all of us that bonded us all in this peer education group, shout out to Pep, um, was trauma. You know, whether we saw it in our communities coming up, whether it was like our best friend being shot, whether it was, you know, having a lot of drugs and alcohol in the home. It was There was something bonding us together right. and it was that we saw similar things together. You know, you know what I'm right. saying? So and then and then on top of that, you know, being uh, you know, black person or a Latinx poor person, you know, like we had all of these things in common. And so little by little, I think, you know, so I went and got my masters at NYU and then I ended up going to California, which was so interesting. But I think I like took a ruler and I was like, what's the farthest I can get from my family and all my people <laughs> and try to like grow. And I think it helped me grow up. Grow the fuck up. Can I curse? Yeah, yeah, you okay, can curse okay. all you want. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm always dropping F-bombs. Yeah. Yeah, so basically that's, I mean, there's so much more, but in a nutshell, going to Cali opened my mind on a whole other level because they kept saying, like I would go and order like a burrito or something and I'd say something to them in Spanish and they'd be like, how do you, you know, like, how does a nigga know how to talk Spanish? And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm like. I'm black, but I'm Latin, but I'm black. You know, like, I didn't understand, like, what they were talking about. And I realized, like, I experienced so much oppression out there because it was very segregated. It was like, white folks are here, you know, black folks are here, and y'all look like this, and you look like that. Right. Or, you know, or you're Asian, or you're Mexican. And I didn't fit into those, so I just, you know, so you're black. And it. I know it sounds really silly, but it was, like, such a culture shock. On so many levels, because everyone's like, oh, Oakland Bay Area, it's so open-minded. And it is, but they're, you know, the tradition, the people on the ground, the poor people, they still... It's not like, yeah. It's not. So, yeah, I started getting more interested in identity, understanding and unpacking my identity, understanding and unpacking how much, like, Latin, Hispanic people, quote-unquote, you know, um, are anti-black in so many ways. You know, look, seeing that in my own family, with my own mom... She doesn't pass in any way as for anything other than pretty much African-American, so it's very interesting. 
Um, but by the time I came back to Jersey, I ended up back at my undergrad university, which is where I work now. Where's that? New Jersey City University. Okay. Yeah, in Jersey City. And um, running the same program that I came up in, Pep. Oh, that is awesome. I know. Um, even though things are changing, you know, we're not going to get into that right now, but... Um, I slowly just started constructing through my students and through the people that I work with and I serve. I feel like they're the groundwork, the impetuous for decolonizing therapy. You know, I mean, I think that every student I work with, every group I ran, I learned very quickly how people heal, but particularly how people of color heal, how people on the margins heal. And it definitely wasn't the ways in which I learned in my textbooks. We're going to get into all of that because I, I think that's like, <laughs> that's obviously the, the center and core of what you're doing and mm-hmm. what you're working on. And I, I think it's so essential. But you talked about identity a lot. What is your ethnic background for, mm-hmm. for somebody mm-hmm. that doesn't know? And how how has your identity or your struggles with sort of understanding it uh, evolved over time? So I identify, so get this, sorry. My dad is Irish and Italian, so he's white. And my mom is indigenous and black Panamanian, right? So, like, that's Central American. And so I grew up, well, now my uncles, aren't, like, they're dark, like, dark skin. Um, my on your mom, mom's side? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then on, on my dad's side, I would always be like, no, like, you know, I'm half white, I'm half white, I'm biracial, I'm biracial. And that didn't. Really, I mean, I'm not denying my biraciality, but I don't walk in the world, even though I can be racially ambiguous depending on where I'm at or how I wear my hair, kind of, sort of. Um, For me, I still always got treated and I always had the experience of being a woman of color, you know, and then most particularly an assumption of being a black woman. And I think in understanding my identity and like understanding how race gets boxed in and who wants to identify as black and who doesn't. doesn't. It was like reclaiming myself and reclaiming my ancestry and honoring myself and my family to be able to be like, no, wait, wait, wait. You know, Latinx, like, what is that? That That's it's kind of made up. And the census is taking it away anyway or has taken it away <laughs> on purpose, right? Because they want Latinx people to identify as white. You know, they don't want them to identify as black for lots of reasons. Um so, yeah, for me, it really became coming into my identity, understanding myself, understanding how the world sees me, even if I want to identify in this or that way, and, like, making a political stance and making a statement. And yeah, so never denying that, you know, my dad is white and that my mom is um, indigenous and Latinx, black, but blackness is who I am at my core and my ancestry and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's how I identify. Did you always see yourself... In in the context in which you do now, or like, is that something that you struggled with as a kid that you more so recently or as you became an adult sort of maybe became a little bit more of a declaration of like, yes. this is who I am? Yes, definitely. I mean, I'm not embarrassed to say at all that it took until maybe my mid-20s to understand anti-blackness, to understand how that plays out even in, like, colorism, how it plays out in a community, um, and to understand my own identity. Like, I probably was, like, in my mid-20s before I really had a coming to. And I think it was from, like, a lot of sister friends in Cali helping educate me, having me read things, being because I had my own stuff around it. I was like, no, well, my dad's white, so isn't that posing? If I identify, and they would just all look at me and be like, girl... <laughs> Okay, like I had so much growing to do because my mom so badly, you know, my mom is the only one that married a white person. So like everybody In else, her like family. yeah. So my two uncles married black women, and then my aunt married a Puerto Rican man, 
right? So me and my brother are in technicality, like some of the like lightest, you know, typically. Um, but it's funny how in so many ways I'm one of the 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 blackest and honoring like what we are and who we do and like bringing it back to that. So I get a little bit of slack and a little bit of heat. And even from the white side of my family, like some people have chosen to cut off from me because they think that little statements I'm making, they see me as racist, even though I'm like, yeah, I can't be racist. I can be a bigot. I can be discriminatory. Right. I could be prejudiced. Not saying that I am, but like black people can't be racist. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, that's not possible. Not in this system. <laughs> not in this system, exactly. So yeah, I mean, and I also had experiences, man, where I was, I remember being first year student rep for my doctoral program. Walking in and saying hi and had my little notebook and I thought I was being like all efficient. And then the dean is like, uh, we're waiting for Jennifer Mullen. And I'm like, that's me. He's like, oh, and it was so, I was like, oh, oh, so is it Mulan or is it, I was like, no, it's Mullen. Oh, and how did that work out for you? That's what he said to me. Wow. Like tons. Talk about microaggression, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. So unpacking all those things in my own therapy and my own like kind of coaching sessions with my own spiritual mentors and people like trying to understand what that is and what that's about. And then in the meantime, to be real, you know, I would have these moments, these dreams or these premonitions, these things that would happen to me. And I guess like my ancestors would speak to me in dreams and stuff. And they were always beautiful black people, you know, and they would just be like, we need you to read this. We need you to this. And like, literally, they would like kind of guide me to like refinding myself and re-expanding and understanding myself. Um, So I have to give a lot of cred, you know, to the people whose shoulders I stand on. You were talking about decolonizing therapy. What is how do we decolonize therapy? Like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because the point is, um, we don't, not in the way that the system is now, right? So kind of the whole decolonizing therapy, um, when people work with me, they realize that it's a play on that, right? That we can try our best to unpack um, systemic oppression, you know, thousands of years of colonization, um, tons of everyday experiences of, of racism of any sort. Um, but what we can't do is just take a system, which is the mental health system, and then apply something like decolonization to it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we need to like undo that system the way that it is now. And um, the way that therapists and psychologists and social workers, not all, although we come into it well-meaning, you know, because like, I'm not shading anyone. We come into it very well-meaning. We want to help people. We know that we have an ability to sit in front of people and make them feel heard and amazing and important. And um, we have been trained by master, essentially. (laughs) You know, we have been trained by primarily white theorists, white theories, um, white understandings. It's extremely Eurocentric from Freud, you know, to Jung. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, you know, and and, and even more current people like Carl Rogers. There you go. CBT, Pavlov, like, you know, behaviorism, like narrative therapy, almost every therapy that we're like kind of force-fed, so to speak, are white men. And then there's a sprinkling of, like, white women and psychodynamic theory and other theories, you know, like Karen Horney and Anna Freud. And But even then, they're hella old. And then you have, yeah, of course, you have um, 
African psychology, which is beautiful. And that's some of what I talk about, you know. Um, you have indigenous, you know, um, kind of psychotherapies and healing work, like Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, amazing. Dr. Joy DeGru Leary, amazing. Um, there's so many individuals that are out there, but you have to seek. You have to go further. You know, you have to kind of decide to get into it. Daryl Wingsu and I think his brother is Derek Wingsu. They're out of Columbia University. They're the ones that talk about and kind of created microaggressions, okay. right? And they create most of the multicultural counseling books. And I only know that because I teach multicultural counseling <laughs> for grad students. And they do some work. And they talk about the dangers of, like, cultural competence and just, like, lumping it all together. You know, and, like, this is how you work with Asian folks. And this is how you work with Latin folks. And it's like... So we start with cultural competence. Right? It just, it doesn't work. Like, who does it work for? Right. Yeah, and that's pretty much what we get in any kind of, like, counseling school. And occasionally you'll get professors, and probably now more than ever, that say, hey, read this article. Hey, this is important. Like, now it's starting to change. Um, But yet and still... Why do you think it's changing? Because we're waking up, truly. I think because of social media. I think because um, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think because we had like Split Rock. I think I think because you know so many black boys have been dying. Sandra Bland is you know murdered. Like right. I think that people and the students are asking for more, and many professors are saying I have to give more. On the other flip side, there are people, maybe kind of like me and others, that are like still in the academia world that are like, no, I need to add this. You know, so like in my multicultural counseling class, um, I tell my students this isn't multicultural counseling, and if you want that. You need to go somewhere. This is really like social justice 504 for counselors. Like, you know, and they're just like, and, and you know, there's always complaints. There's always someone crying, you know, and I'm not sitting there like blah, blah, blah. But it's, I just feel like therapists in training, counselors in training, social workers in training, they have to look at their own shit. And that isn't something that is like embedded in the process. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. It's just like you go out and you help other people. And that to me is a power dynamic that needs to be like, turned on his head so that's what i mean by decolonizing therapy is like who created these theories who are they originally for um do they benefit all peoples outside of white identities right or outside of cisgendered or heterosexual identities or small bodies or able people like do they work for everybody and if not what are we doing about it you know and am i working on myself and checking my own privilege and my own points of power and oppression a lot of this, you know, the field of psychology and, you know, therapy and this work is and has been founded on the shoulders of a lot of white men. Mm-hmm. You're not that. How has navigating that space been for you? Like, what are some of the challenges that you've, you've faced in, in trying to explore and navigate um, this domain? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how have you... Yeah, what are some of the challenges that you've seen or experienced in, in sort of navigating this domain that's very much dominated by or has been historically dominated by cisgender white men? Beautiful. I had to take a sip of water. No, no, like, oh, Because I was like, oh, God, here we go. No, here no, we go. Good. Yeah, no, um, I have so much trauma. And my, and my dad knows this. Um, even if we haven't had conversations about it, like growing up with a white father was my first training and what it was like to be a woman of color and to be um, not treated the way everyone else is treated within my own home. And it's deep because I was stronger in a different way. It's like my mom on one end is very um, passive and, and, and like, 
Um, and not that I can't be super freaking loving and all that, you know, to whoever I'm dating or whatever it is. But my mom is all the time just like, what do you need, my love? Like, I'll get it for you. You want to wipe your ass? I got that too. I will. You know, like, you know, she's just, and it was how she was raised, right? Like, this is how you are. And so me being like, well, dad, I don't understand why you can't pick up your plate. Like, you just finished each, put it in the sink. You know, like, I didn't understand what was happening in my own home until, um, Clearly, I would you know get into relationships and then experience that with people I was dating and realize, whoa, why am I having such a reaction? Like, one thing, me saying, "Hey, let me get that for you," you know. And there's another thing, like, here you go, like take that, right. <laughs> you know. And then getting into grad school with predominantly like white male teachers, sitting there, and I would realize that my whole body would take on this stance. You know, it'd be real, like at real Jersey City real quick. Like I would find myself in very like professional settings, sitting back, you know, getting real like, like what, what is this? Like Resist. Getting, yes. Yes. Thank you. Like I felt very resistant and very irritated. And now I know that that is a sign that something is not resonating with me and my spirit. Now I know through years, you know, like I'm 41 years old. So like at this point, I'm just like, okay, now I get it. But back then, I just wasn't feeling it, you know. And things will pop up. Case in point, professor, I was at NYU's weekend intensive program, right? And I walk in one day. I guess I had a night of partying with friends. And I'm speaking to my friend and my cohort. And I don't know what I was saying, to be honest with you. But I guess I was, like, really loose with my language, for lack of a better term. Right. And I was talking about something and the fun we had somewhere in the city. And the professor... In the middle of class, so we fast forward, we do this thing, and I give an answer, and he's like, you know, Jennifer, white man, you're so articulate, and you're so intelligent, and your writing is beautiful, but every so often, this boys in the hood comes out of you. Yeah. And um, I didn't say anything, because I shut down. Like, you know, it felt so unsafe. Um, I remember crying afterwards. I remember, like, you know, you know those things you can't get out of your mind, and you keep... Yeah. Like, thinking about, and then I was like, I want to say something to him, but he has my grade, you know. So things like that happened throughout my whole career. Um, I remember being at a group interview for a hospital that I was interviewing for to, you know, be a clinician. And it went from, like, an individual to a group interview from zero to 100. And so it was going great, and they seemed to love me, and we were do I was doing in my past was very in line with what they were doing and the people they worked with. And by then I was very clear, like I wanted to predominantly like dedicate my life to serving people that are poor at the poverty level right. and people of color predominantly. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the psychiatrist, this white man, I don't know if he was gay or not because he didn't stay around. But he was like, you know, you're talking about you, you, you a lot. And I'm thinking in my head, like, this is an interview. You asked me to talk about me. You know, I'm like, right. oh, my God, am I sounding like a straight narcissist? What am I? Like, you know, I had to check myself. Like, and I found myself almost shrinking, like, my shoulders. And I was, like, nodding, like, trying to understand what he was saying. And he's like, what about, what, what have you done in collaboration? And then one of the other women who I was interviewing for was like, she just said, blah, 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 blah. And then they started going back and forth in the interview. And I was just sitting there like, oh, snap. Yeah, What's happening? Tensions. You know? And then he was like, yeah, but it's just. She's not going to work here. She's not going to work here. Her personality's too strong. She's not going to take direction. And I was like, yo. And then, you know, I started taking that on personally. So I hope this is answering your question. No, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's what started happening to me is realizing that if I had some confidence, 
that people either took it as like, well, particularly white men, they were like like an intimidation, like an uncomfortability. Like, wait, wait, little Negro mulatto, like you need to be in your in your space. In your space. Whoever said you were a narcissist is like probably so. That's so off base because <laughs> everything you're doing right now is about people. Mm-hmm. So. Whoever said that, fuck them. But um, <laughs> thank you. Thank no, no, you. seriously. Yeah. But uh, I think it's 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 an interesting thing, and it's something I see. I have to correct myself sometimes. We talk about privilege. I hear I'm this like black educated man who works with kids. I teach kids, and when I see young girls of color going buck wild in mm-hmm. the hallway at school, I'm like. Come on, you could be better than that. But then I have to check myself, too, sometimes. Like, why am I saying, you know, like, yeah. why am I trying to correct this particular behavior? Yeah. Um, and it's something I, I actually struggle with because mm. I know that I I can understand that aspect of it, right? I don't think the world can understand it. Yeah. And so sometimes I feel like if I if I ignore it, then I'm doing my kids a disservice. Yeah. You understand? Yeah, yeah. And so it's just, it, it's like this constant, like, yeah, I, hear I don't you. know, like, wh- like wh- where is the line for, for me and for them? Uh, and when am I, when am I helping and when am I not? In her book, Push Out, Monique W. Morris highlights how American schools have come to reflect the larger issues surrounding criminal justice and the demonization of black girls and women in America. For example, in 2007, a six-year-old girl named Desiree Watson was escorted out of a Florida classroom in handcuffs for having a bad tantrum. In 2012, another six-year-old named Salisha Johnson was arrested in her Georgia school for throwing toys and books in her classroom, which her school administration described as a tantrum that required law enforcement. And in 2013, Eight-year-old Jemiah Rickman was restrained and arrested in her Illinois classroom after what was described as a bad tantrum, even though she was autistic and suffered from depression and separation anxiety. From the outset, young black girls are targeted, and we must take a deep look into our institutions and how they demonize and even criminalize black girls. But that's not all. We also must consider the psychological trauma this inflicts on black women as they enter adulthood. You know, and the psychologist part of me understands how we want to keep our people safe. Like how you're trying to make sure the babies are well, make sure these girls don't end up getting called out by someone not like you or a cop. You know, we've seen these videos of cops like body slamming these young black girls in schools. And I don't know if you've seen those videos. No, I've seen them. I've seen them. They're like, they're traumatic to watch. They're just like, damn, that's like my niece. That's my, you know, that's really painful to watch. So I think, um, I talk a little bit about it in my dissertation, which I know I got to make into like a book, but I have not. Um, So my dissertation was on um, the effects of intergenerational trauma and like inner city black male youth. Um, and really just looking at how, like, slavery connects with present That's the, day. from Cotton Fields to Concrete, Concrete Jungle. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about it. I want to talk about it. But, like, but so, like, one of the things that Dr. Joy DeGruyere, she wrote on post-traumatic slave syndrome, one of the things that she talks about is how some of those behaviors still play out today, right? So, 
uh, you know, black moms will still maybe be a little bit more, and I'm generalizing, be very aggressive with their young black males, you know, and it, to an extent where you better put it together, you better put your pants up, you better not this, right. you better not that, I don't want to pick you up from the police department, you know, maybe even being a bit more aggressive verbally or physically, but if we can trace it all the way back to cotton fields, literally, <laughs> you know, and to the fear of what a black female identified person would feel thinking, okay, well, if my son acts out or this young male acts out or my partner acts out, this is what's going to happen. They're gonna, you know, they're going to be murdered. You're going to be lynched. Right. Um, so that fear is still very intergenerationally and epigenetically like in our bodies and in our systems. Um, we do what we need to do to like protect each other. So I don't know, you know, yeah, so I don't, no, for it just sure. reminded me of that. You telling those girls like, da, 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 da. and then of course, you know, you, I'm assuming you're a man, you know, right. so that's there. Um, and then with that though, I think like one of the healthiest things I even try to do with like my little cousins or youth or even the students that I work with, I'm just like, look, this is how like society's going to see it. It's like that conversation, you know, that's like, how I have right? it. That's the only right? way I know how to have it. Like, this is how society's going to see this. And here's how I'm trying to protect you. And, and I think the other important part is like, and I love you for who you are. I appreciate you for who you right. are. You know, I like you for who you are. I, I do think that black women get very demonized when we're intense. You know, that rage and makes people flip out. But then we sit back and we look at, huh, it's actually a beautiful form of self-expression. You know, right. um, it's actually like a way to communicate like your passion, your happiness, your sadness, your intensity. You touched on post-traumatic slave syndrome. What What is that exactly? Um, well, Dr. Joy DeGuleri, I love her. She's one of the first people that like got me into understanding what intergenerational trauma is. Um, so side note, um, it's also known as multi-generational trauma or historical trauma, um, especially like our Native brothers and sisters talk a lot about historical trauma and unresolved grief. So it is basically like the cumulative effects of like slavery and various systemic inequities, like racism, as an example, or colorism, and how that plays out in somebody's mind, body, and spirit. She gives it a much bigger definition, but, you know, in general, she's just, like, connecting slavery with present day. And she talks about three particular kind of, like, manifestations of her present anger yeah. and how that gets, quote-unquote, demonized, kind of like what we were just talking about, but particularly for black women. Racist socialization are the ways that we've been like kind of um, brainwashed and conditioned to even see ourselves in each other in some like racist ass ways. And oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the next one. Uh, okay, wait, hold on. Racist socialization, ever present anger. And there's one more. It'll come to me. I'm sorry. I'm on the spot. Um, but these three ways essentially, like, make up how a person continues to sort of, like, move in this world, how they feel about themselves, how they look at themselves, and whether or not they believe in themselves. You know, it's this kind of feeling that things are never going to be fully as good as maybe they are for others. Right. Um, yeah. And it's also the way that we have internalized the messages of society and how it affects our self-esteem. Um, that's what it is. Boom. Vacant self-esteem. That Vacant was the third one. Vacant self-esteem. Yeah. Um, this kind of learned, some people say like it's a learned hopelessness or helplessness, but it is a sense of self and how we feel about ourselves and like a hollowness that may be there deeply if you really like dig deep. Mm -hmm. I know on, on one of your social media posts, you wrote capitalism is uh, driving more people into crisis or something like that. Mm -hmm. Can you Can you explain the 
the intersection of capitalism and, and mental health and trauma and things like that? Absolutely. We start looking at the ways in which we blame people, individuals, for their issues and problems, um, kind of like therapy. Not that we're directly blaming someone, but we're like, oh, maybe you need to work harder to get that job. Or maybe you need to cut your locks. Or maybe, you know, the things right. that therapists say sometimes, well-meaning, well-intentioned, not looking at how the system has played a role in that. Right. Like how systemic racism and inequities have continued to like bring down a person and not make it easy for them. Capitalism wants us to just continue to feed it, continue to make this small one percent, five percent richer, you know, while the rest of us are just aiming for that, not seeing how it continues to like really fuck over the people at the bottom. And it doesn't matter how hard you work, because some of the poorest people I know in this world work the hardest. Right are some of the hardest working MFers I've ever met. So don't tell me that, like, being poor has anything to do with being lazy. I mean, some people, sure. But, you know, have you ever met a rich person as lazy? Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> have you ever met anybody who was, like, trifling and messing with the system and mad wealthy? Uh-huh. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, like, it doesn't take a lot to... Uh manage like a financial wealth portfolio from a computer like that is that i mean it does probably in some context depending on who you ask but like is the to have money and be able to like invest money and put money in mm -hmm. different places and stocks and stuff like that that's just like a matter of of privilege and having at times more than yeah. like the work that you're doing right yes, or yes. the work that you did to acquire that wealth so no i think what you're saying is 100 percent true and I don't think people that are in those uh, positions a lot of time even really think about that, yeah. right? They think, yeah. they think, oh, I'm working hard. Uh, yeah. You know, I made these dividends this year right. over, you know, and it's just like, well, you didn't really work that hard, but like you do have access. Exactly. You know? So it's like who doesn't have access and who does? And so the mental health, what I call the mental health industrial complex, just like the prison industrial complex, right? Um, we benefit. We Like, I make money off poor people. Not that I purposely do, you know? Like, I got into this for good reasons. But as, again, People's Institute talks about, there's gatekeeping, right? Like, I have access to decide who gets to come in for services, who doesn't. If they're five, ten minutes late, do I give them access to these services? Um, if they call out twice, then I can decide, you know, whether or not I let them come back. Um, I can decide that I don't want to see them when they have children. I've had colleagues tell me, like, why are you doing therapy with someone with their little five-year-old there? And I'm like, first of all, they got here. First and last of all. Second of all, clearly we're not going to be talking about some heavy-ass shit like their trauma history with five-year-old there. Third of all, I have headphones in my office just for that. Like, noise-canceling right. ones, you know? And I have toys just for that because I feel like how else... Like, I want you to get in here. And that's one of the ways that therapy or mental health continues to kind of discriminate, consciously or not, against our poor people. You know what I mean? Which predominantly are people of color. And then if we look at it even further, you know, we can look at how did the GI Bill affect people of color and black folks, right? Yeah. You know, how did 40 acres a mule, a mule, a bushel and a musket, like all of that decided who had wealth and how it got passed on. And so, you know, one of the ways that we get rich, right, is passing on land. And that's not possible when even though we were tilling the land and <laughs> taking care of the land yeah. and breastfeeding white babies, we still don't have, you know, the equity to support that. It's all of that and more. Like, mental health continues um, 
to benefit off poor people. I mean, when those of us that got trained and we had to do internship and practicum, they don't send you out into like Bergen County and like, you know, these rich areas, you know, even for student teaching, they're sending you to the hood, you know? So we're also in our hoods and in our areas and our inner cities we're getting experimented on even still. It doesn't even have to be Tuskegee experiment. Like, that shit is still happening today. I think I've said it before. I don't know. I don't know. But I just feel like people of color, like black people's, to be clear, and indigenous black people's and brown people's relationship with the United States of America is very violent. You know, it's like a domestic violence relationship. It's like, we're here. The oppressor and the land in which it happened. It's almost like being in the house in which you got beat. Sorry for the tr- you know trigger warning, and having to still work, having to still raise your kids in this, you know, because this is what you got, right? right? This is this is your home too, and you don't want to leave, but yet the abuser still in the home actually owns the home, <laughs> you know, but you've busted your ass to build it brick by brick, and then you got to raise your children in it, <laughs> and I just think it's like such a mind fuck. Like, no no wonder why we're in rage, which is why I talk about rage a lot, because I feel like rage is a very understandable response to a block goal, to, to any block dreams, to, to just basic needs, right. you know? So, like, mom and dad's out there are worried about their kids every day. You know, I remember, I hope I'm not going on a tangent here, but I remember seeing um, the Trayvon Martin trial. Not the whole thing, because I can't watch stuff like that, because it amps me too much. Yeah. But... Hearing that George Zimmerman, because again, even though he wasn't quote unquote white, he definitely represents whiteness, Be right? Careful, like, he might sue you. <laughs> yes, he might. That's no, right. Yes. <laughs> okay, rewind. GZ. Oh, <laughs> right? Like, he represents this, right? and he can. He'll just get all my student loan debt. Like, yeah, there's not, yeah. <laughs> I have nothing. But, like, this representation of like whiteness taking this boy, and I remember sobbing. I remember sobbing, like like watching this. I remember like Tamir Rice's body on the floor and like his mom trying to get to him. You know, this is what, 14? He's 13, yeah. 14 years old. You know, and his mom's trying to get to him and they're like manhandling her. They're trying to arrest her. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is a baby. You know, Mike Brown, same thing. And, and I know I'm bringing up people that we all know, but I remember seeing these things and thinking... Yo, they don't love us. This is still open season. It's never changed. It hasn't changed since Emmett Till. It just looks different. And they have to be more careful, quote unquote, before they just like open fire on our asses, you know? And I just remember being deeply, deeply affected and going into class the next day or being in session with people at the counseling center where I work um, and just like, and that's what I mean by decolonizing therapy too. And just at some point or maybe in the beginning being like, so I'm wondering if you heard a little bit about what's been going on, you know, there would be tears. Like 10 times out of 10, any like person of color, they would just be like, yo, I don't feel safe in my body. Or yo, this reminded me of my cousin Rico. Or yo, it were my like all I had to do is, hey, I'm wondering if you've been paying attention. I wonder if you know right. anything about like I wasn't like putting my political stance on it or saying this is how Dr. Mullen felt about it. It was just Wondering if you've been hearing a little bit about what's going down. Boom. It would all come out. You know, the same way a lot of people felt about Nipsey Hutzel, right, being murdered. And so a lot of other people, to be honest, a lot of white therapists may not understand why the murder of Nipsey Hussle would deeply affect folks of color. Yeah, I say it all the time. You know what I'm saying? I, I, Nipsey died and I was, I was, like, crying. Yeah. Um, I was really crying. And even now, like, thinking about it, I get a little emotional. Um, 
and I didn't even know the guy, right? right. But um, I don't think people realize, and and anytime I'm talking to people that are not people of color and not in tune with like the culture, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. I always try to put that in context with them because like Nip was like so. I don't know, man. It was like he was like a, a walking vessel yeah. of so many things, you know? I, that's the best way to describe him, that's as real. a vessel. So you wrote this dissertation from Cotton Fields to Concrete Jungle. Can you break down what you were hoping or looking to explore exactly and ultimately what you unearthed in the process? Yeah, sure. At the time, I had was I was working predominantly in systems um, in California and New York and New Jersey because um, I was in my doctoral program in, in California and San Francisco, and um, you know I was working with youth from Bayview, Hunters Point, and, and Frisco, and um, Oakland, East Oakland, and of course because that's where they would put the interns and, and what right. have you, you know, um, juvenile detention centers, um, and predominantly working with all these young black males um, who are diagnosed with all these, like, behavioral disorders, right? And, again, like, decolonizing therapy, what it is now, is not in my mind. You know, I was just trying to be a good old student and try to understand. But I guess I had questions that were frequently outside of the box and the norm, right? So, you know, sometimes we didn't be in our supervisions as I'm writing my dissertation and we're getting support from our advisors and what have you and our chairs. And I would ask questions like, well, you know, I'm wondering if slavery or the institution of what slavery was in the U.S. plays out in any way, shape or form, because I'm talking about intergenerational trauma, how trauma got passed down from our great, 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 great granddaddy to our great daddy, you know, like so on and so forth. And, um, you know, epigenetics as science supports that, how the strands of DNA gets changed, literally, um, biologically, because of our environment. You know, so how does that change for better and for worse, as you were saying? So I wasn't interested in just focusing on this is what black folks need and people of color need. And this is why we're less than or resilience. I was interested in understanding how this level of pain and displacement from your original home, you know, and then all of this abuse that somebody encountered in the very lands in which they're living. How does that play out in our personalities and psyches today? I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and looking at the strength-based aspect of it, not just like, oh, this is horrible. Because I know, you know, when we talk about this, like you're saying, if it's, it's a little heavy. But I think that that's why America, um, United States of America, have such a struggle because it doesn't acknowledge like what has happened and it really hasn't displayed an apology in any way from reparations verbally, emotionally, physically, Mm, you know? So as I was doing this, I would have professors like, you know, Jennifer, psychology and politics don't miss, don't mix. At the time I was just like, okay, well, how do I like unfuck myself from this? Because everything is political for many of us. Like, like, even if we don't see it as political. And I get, again, that's a part of decolonizing therapy and how it comes around to my dissertation because it's like, mm, did your mom have health care when you were being born? This shit is political, right? You know, uh, did your mom breastfeed or not? N- no judgment to it at all. Just like, you know, right. why, did she, why didn't she have help? Was there latching problems, right? Um, did you go home to a home? Was it infested with any kind of roaches? Did it have asbestos? Did you? Did she have postnatal care? Did she have post uh, like de- you know depression? Right. You know afterwards, uh, what kind of schools did you go to? Like everything. Where did you live? Where did you live? Right? Like, we can keep going. We can yeah. keep going. So what'd you eat? Right, right. 
Right? Where Cheetos your dinner because that's what it was and quarter juices. Hey, right. sometimes no, no, that was sure. my lunch, no, right? Sure. Honey buns. <laughs> you know? So, so even though I couldn't have that thought for myself at that time because I was still so deeply embedded in being a student in the system, years later, I'm just like, even if we're not calling it political and what I do in my work with people as quote unquote, like I'm not sitting there talking about politics. It's political because our very black and brown bodies and our very essences are political and the way we're treated in this world are political and whether or not we have any food to eat, it's political. You know, do we have enough money for bus fare? I have students that can't come and see me because they're literally like, yo, I don't got money for the bus. Like, all right, you want to have a phone session? Yeah, so basically I was studying this, but under a very big white fist telling me that politics should not be included in my psychological dissertation. So me being the little you know, oppositional person that I was. And I was like, all right, bet. So I'm going to do a theoretical, right? So a theoretical um, includes just looking at all these theories and then like giving like a really big review extensively saying this is what I found. So when doing that, of course, I was looking at who talks about intergenerational trauma, many people for the Holocaust, their generation. So I was doing that, Japanese internment camps, um, looking then at the institution of slavery and connecting it. So there's politics all in that, right? right? Um, And then I was looking at different theories and what, if anything, would support this intergenerational trauma that got passed down to black kids. And so basically that's what, um, in my dissertation, I just started realizing that the personal is political, particularly if you're a poor person, you know, or any kind of historically marginalized group that it's one and the same, and that white psychology, as I call it, um, the way that it is now, can't really hold us and contain us the way that we need, right? So as therapists, we're trained, we have to contain, we have to hold the space, right? We're a container. Right. Well, some white therapists can if they have a bit of an analysis. They can. I have hella, like, white allies that get it. But there comes to a certain point, even in their good therapy, and my colleagues will tell you that they'll say, I think it's time for therapist of color i can't help you <laughs> right i can't help you pass this space you know and and it actually it's like i think it could be really healing for a person in the right place you know be like yeah wow for a white person to even admit that they can't help me with something is sometimes like a lot of us don't get that you know, like you know right. what i'm saying no, no, like no, yeah. and not just in a, oh you need to go but just like i want you to start thinking about what it would be like to work with a black therapist rather than continue to work with me because now we're starting to talk about identity and race and this. And yeah, we've worked on it this far in the last two years, but I think in order to get to that other level and then, you know, students will just be like, yo, like, like, like it could be very healing and very triggering and all of it, you know, and then they get to process that. But um, yeah, I think some of that plays out in my work today and trying to make sure that therapists are always keeping themselves accountable, that they're not just like, you should do this. You should do that. You should do this. Like, I want to know if you work on your shit. <laughs> like, even me with my therapist, like, I want to know if you work on your shit. Where do you think that comes from, though? Where does, like, the, I like to call it a curtain that therapists mm. put up. Where does that come from? Is that just you know, antiquated practices and sort of beliefs of ways and systems of doing this work? Or is it, or is it something that goes beyond that? People want to have this guys, like, I don't, I'm not in that space. I'm not working in that space, but like, where do you think it comes from? 
Yeah, we it, we get trained. You know, they they train us to you know, um, and there's some positivities to this, like have boundaries, not make it about us. Um, psychodynamic theory, you know, very Freud talks a lot about like being a blank slate, not showing them anything, not having your office should look like this. Like, you know, right. there should be nothing that identifies who you are because then the patient will project on it. So let me just say that every theory, there are nuggets of beauty, if that makes sense. It's like a person, right? right. Like every theory and every person has a shadow and a light. Like it's just like honoring both. However... I think boundaries are another way for us to sit on some, like, throne sometimes, even if we don't mean to, and not be a person. What do you think separates you from the typical psychologist mm. out there? Like, how does your approach differ? Like, what do you do that you think is very distinct to you? This is a great question, because I'm like, huh, what do I do? What will my students say that I do? I think um, I bring in all of their experiences and... Sometimes I create ritual with them, you know, sometimes depending if they're a very spiritual person, I'm finding that a lot of our incoming um, young people, hella conscious, like they they already see and get things that a lot of us are learning still, you know, and they'll come in talking about like hearing voices. But I know and I've already assessed in my mind, my clinical mind, like, OK, this isn't about any kind of, uh, you know, schizophrenia or they're not having some kind of, like, psychotic process, you know? Right. And maybe they're an empath. And maybe they are experiencing hearing things and seeing things that are very spiritual. So sometimes we're setting up sacred space. You know, like, I bring in the ancestral into our space. Um, sometimes I'm getting on the floor and we're doing trauma timelines, you know? Um, and, like, literally on paper, drawing out not just times where things have been bad and traumatic, but also on the top, how you got through. Like, who was there for you? Was it a wow, coach? That's powerful. You know, was it a teacher? Like yourself, you know, was it, yeah, Mr. Wally? I don't know what they call you. you know? Yeah, call me Wally. <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, yes, I love it. Yeah. See, you know, like, said to me that day, and like, man, like, look, you can't do this, but blah, 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 blah. And it helped me re-see things differently. It helped me see myself in a different light. And, okay, and, you know, how'd you get through this? Well, I don't know. I had an imaginary friend, and that imaginary friend, oh, I dope. Like, you know, just like, Showing a person that even through all the shit they went through, that they managed to overcome and that we will continue to overcome and that not being here is not an option. You know, I explore with people um, their deepest desires, you know, like not in an inappropriate way. But if, you know, like sometimes my students are so into astrology, man, you know, like they're like, what's your sign? <laughs> Old therapy? Would not oh have that. God. Would not have that in any way, shape, or form. And then meanwhile, I'm just like, sun, moon, or rising? And they're like, okay, I see you, Dr. Rowland. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so my sun signs cancer, my rising's Virgo. You know, so like, I break it down, why? And then, but then make it about them. Like, why? Sometimes they're like, look, this is happening astrologically. But it's not surface. It's deep. Like, I never let it be surface. So whoever they are, whatever they're into... Some of the other things I do is I don't pretend that I know everything and I'll let them know when I don't um, or when I feel like I can't serve them to their best ability. Um, another thing I do is don't cut off contact after we're done. If somebody wants to email me once a month and just tell me how they're doing, even though I'm clear I'm not your therapist anymore, I can't do such and such. If they want to come by and give me a quick hug and just say, thank you, I feel it, you know, I'm still alive, I'm thinking about you, I know I graduated. I make space for that. Um, I feel what sets 
my work a bit apart is that nothing is off the table. Nothing. So you talk about, you know, these holistic approaches, group therapy, individualized therapy, politicizing therapy, mm -hmm. decolonizing therapy. Like, we can go on and on and on. Um, but one of the things or forms of treatment that people often get wrapped up in is uh, using medication to mm -hmm. treat mm -hmm. different mental health disorders and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. What What are your thoughts on medication and the role it plays in healing? Yeah, great question. Um, I honestly feel like in this world, in this place where we live right now, medication definitely has a role for certain people. And, and I know it's like a cheesy response, but it's like every case is different. Every person is different. Um, and honestly, I allow a person to tell me like how they're doing. And like, so if somebody brings up medication, right, the conversation might go something like, okay, well, let's talk about how severe this is. How often? What is the severity? How is it impacting your life? Like, is it preventing you? Let's say you're having, someone's having like manic episodes, right? Where they're like swinging really high and then swinging to really, 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 really depressively low right. where they might harm themselves, right? Um, so I'm not sitting here saying don't take medication. Don't take medication. Like that would be completely inappropriate, I think. Um, I would definitely want to understand how often this happens, what they've tried already, what they need, and then I would refer them to very sound either advanced practice nurses or psychiatrists, right? Um, that can do that work with them. And actually that I know we'll have conversations with them because unfortunately – some of the psychiatrists in my area, not all, are not, like, really talking to the person. They're just like, okay, what do you have symptoms? Yep, I'm going to give you this. But they don't tell you that it might cause erectile dysfunction or bad acne or weight gain. You know right, what I mean? Like, right. it's not always telling people what they could be experiencing or, hey, let me know if this starts happening. We'll try you on something else. So I really, like, try to educate. But sometimes people, they're just, like, stuck in a hamster cycle and we've tried all these other things. And if I still see a very extreme, I'm not talking about like a five out of a 10 out of depression, but I'm talking, you're not only thinking about it, but you're moving forward with like a plan. Like right. you're starting to think about A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like you're telling me like the scent that you want in the room if shit were to go down. And I'm just like, nah, okay, no. Like this is, <laughs> right. this is a risk. Um or if I see, like, it's just, like, a steady depression that is just, like, impairing someone's ability to even be joy. There's some people I've been seeing for two years, and they're like, no, I, I don't want to do medication. And no matter what I do with them or try, I kind of feel like a shitty therapist because I just feel like there's nothing shifting. Yeah, crack the code. Yeah, like, we're still in the same cycle. And then there are times I'll say, you know. I'm wondering how you would feel about being on a very low dose antidepressant. And here are the pros and cons of that. And I'm not pushing it. I'm not selling it. I can't prescribe it to you. But here's what I'm seeing. And sometimes the brain needs a little bit of a jump start. So unless you're going to go do a remote year somewhere where they're going to hold you in space. Because, right, in other cultures. That's what they do. That's what they could do. Send you to a shaman. Yeah. And, and the reality is that's what I'm hoping, I guess, to do in decolonizing therapy is like, Therapists are not allowed to use other things other than therapy to help people heal. And I don't like that. I don't like being boxed in. All right, everybody, before we wrap up with this episode, I want to thank Dr. Mullen for coming out and joining me on 730. I also want to just point out that it isn't uncommon for me to get a message or 
an email from Dr. Mullen just, you know, checking in on me. So I appreciate that as well. I got mad love for you and keep doing your thing. Also, I want to give a shout out to my little brother, Ian Javier. He just launched the Human Plants podcast, which centers on New York stories told through two guests who are trying to grow and evolve to become better human plants. And so it's a dope podcast. They talk a lot about like wellness and self-care and just different things of that nature. It's dope to see more people of color just entering the podcast space. So congrats to you, E, and uh, keep pushing. And if you guys can tap into and listen to this podcast, he's a natural. And lastly, I've been very outspoken about this Justice for Keith Lamar campaign. He's a brother who's currently on death row in Ohio for crimes that he didn't commit. And I've recently started corresponding with him. He's such an amazing spirit. And it's so heartbreaking to see the psychological torture he's been subject to. He's been in solitary confinement for 27 years, 23 hours a day. And I'm trying to do everything possible to help reverse the decision in regards to his expiration date. So. If you want more information, you can visit keithlamar.org. You can also visit his Instagram and Facebook pages at Justice for Keith Lamar. And lastly, I highly recommend that you purchase and read his book, Condemned. Quite frankly, outside of the autobiography of Malcolm X, I don't think I've read anything that's had as big of an impact on my life. And that's all for now. Hope everybody's staying safe, taking care of themselves, and we'll catch you guys the next go around. Always peace. Always love.